a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a rock. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expanding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. So on this episode, we're going to talk to a good friend of mine. Uh, his career in aerospace engineering launched in 1982 with Rockwell International, working not only on the shuttle program, but on the STS-4 through 44, assisting on the Challenger accident investigation and the shuttle's return to flight as well. And he was just getting started. So from 1990 to 96, he was at Rocketdyne, where he worked on the conceptual design, planting, and implementation of the International Space Station and the electric power systems. So from there, it was on to Boeing, where he continued to work and design development for the ISS. In 2003, he assisted in the Columbia Accident Investigation, trained astronauts for the ISS and spacewalks, performed zero-gravity aircraft experiments, such as thermal vacuum testing, and he worked in the Neutral Buoyancy Lab as well. His impressive accomplishments go on and on, but I'm not going to spoil it, because here today we have... Kirk Carlton, the man who kept his feet on the ground, but his head way above the clouds. So, Kurt, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing great. How good about deal. you? Oh, every day above ground's a good one, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's more important for me because I'm a little older than you are. No, you're. that's okay. Yeah, all the days. All the days are great. Uh, okay, well, Patrick, you're here as well. What's up, dude? I am. How's it going? Going great. How are you? I'm good. Okay, cool. Doing very well. And my brother Patrick as well decided to join us for this episode. You have an interest in uh, this type of thing as well, don't you? Quite a bit, yes. Okay. Quite a bit. Do you want to tell us where your background lies? Yes. I didn't prepare a bio for you. I apologize. That's okay. Um, <laughs> not much to tell, but I did study astrophysics in college. Okay. Um, was very, uh, very interested in exoplanets and followed NASA very closely and still continue to do so. I think it's very important. So very excited to be here for the yeah. conversation. This is going to be great. So Kurt and I have talked quite a few times on the phone and I just found you incredibly interesting. We've become good friends and I appreciate that. Uh, your, your career is incredible. Uh, your bio is insane. So let's just begin at the beginning. So what got you interested in aerospace engineering to begin with? I uh, like anybody going to college, you know, you never know exactly what you're going to take on or enjoy but uh i always thought i would try and turn into a pilot tried to get into uh rotc back in college and nobody would ever guarantee you a path towards being a pilot yeah they want you to join in and sign up for six years and oh yeah we'll do the best we can it's like nah that's not good enough <laughs> yeah so headed into engineering and uh aero astro was the way to go back in the day I went to school up in University of Washington in Seattle, and you know Boeing is that's their home. So a lot of uh, Boeing support went to the uh, Aero Astro School at University of Washington. Oh, awesome! And uh, everybody that went there pretty much believed that they were going to end up at Boeing somewhere. Yeah, and uh, just turned out when I graduated in '82, Boeing wasn't hiring anybody. Just time, you know, the time of life. Yeah. And uh, so we tried other things. And actually, I just lucked out. It's, uh, we had on-campus interviews, you know, after getting my or just before I finished my degree. Hmm. And I had an interview with Rockwell International. And the one line item on the whole, whenever you do an interview for college, they just basically, they're writing down buzzwords hmm. that somebody can search in the corporation if they're looking for somebody. And my line was aircraft performance. Oh, Because wow. I, I liked designing airplanes when I was in college, and, you know, that, I liked that part of the, of the, you know, the education. Yeah. And I put aircraft performance on there, and my first job was with uh, the space shuttle doing shuttle performance for 
the vehicle. Yeah, because you got brought in right after college. So you graduated in 82. You got brought in straight to the program. And then your first thing that you worked on was, what was the fuel uh, issue they were having with the shuttle? It, they call it ascent performance. But they just, uh, I jumped into the shuttle program right after STS-4, which was the first four test flights. Right. And the vehicle was flying different than they predicted or simulated. Right. So they wanted to figure out how to predict more like the vehicle was actually flying. Yeah. So we did what we called, uh, you know, flight design reconstruction. What can we do to the performance characteristics of the vehicle to get our simulation to fly actually like it's flying? Right. And the closer you can predict to actual, the better your margins are. Margins being just, you know, fuel left over. Right. And if you can turn fuel left over into payload, and, you know, they always wanted to keep a specific margin that was safe. Yeah. So that it didn't run out of fuel. So they always had, you know, this margin that was, you always wanted to hit. And it turned out we had more fuel at the end of the flight than we needed. Wow. So they wanted to take that difference and turn it into payload. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a pound profound at that point. Absolutely. At the, at the end of the ascent trajectory, it's, uh, if you can turn that few thousand pounds of extra fuel into a few thousand pounds of payload, payload, yeah, that's a bunch of money. So they're looking at it at dollars and cents, but we were looking at it as you know, how do we tweak all the variables of of a you know rocket and and uh, aerodynamic vehicle to make it to to predict better, to simulate better. So cool. So he was 26 when he was doing this. What were you doing at 26, Patrick? I was teaching physics at a very small high school, mm. so not that. Okay. Coincidentally, the same age, Isaac Newton published all of his work. Albert Einstein published his work. Yeah. So 26 seems to be a good age. It's a good age. I was doing a lot of drugs and probably shouldn't have been doing that. But uh, I was not, I did not have the ambitions you did. I did not know what I wanted to do. And so for you to just jump straight into it, I mean, just with even an, an interest in it to be able to be thrown into that program. Never, never really thought I would jump into the space program so to speak uh when i was going through college but it was a great opportunity and i gotta say i uh i drug a couple friends with me uh fraternity brothers from college i jumped into rockwell and got both of them hired uh the next year and uh they loved it at the time you know 80 early 80s is when computers were just getting getting going mm -hmm. and uh they just hired a bunch of kids because they wanted to take all this data and start using these great computers and start crunching data for whatever purpose. And it just turns out my, my niche was, you know, shuttle ascent performance and we just kept going from there. And it's so cool because it started with just a glider program in 77, right? Uh, the early, late the, 70s for yeah. sure, right after Apollo. And they just wanted to design a vehicle because after the Apollo program, they launched that Saturn V. They had all these vehicles that they used, but they weren't reusable at all. So it was a big waste of money, basically. I mean, if you look at it economically. And it, so what they wanted to do is make a mostly reusable space vehicle. Correct. And so that's where they came up with the shuttle program. And you got on board it in 82, and the first launch with Columbia was in 81. Correct. That's crazy. So you're a year into the program even being done as a as a manned flight program, because Endeavor just was an unmanned glider program, or it was manned, but it was just a glider program. And then in 81, that's when they launched, what, just a pilot and a co-pilot? Two, yeah, two two-man crew, pilot, co-pilot. Instead co -pilot. that they normally had? Or, and it could vary anywhere in there depending on, you know, the mission objectives, but uh, up to up to seven. So you got in at basically the damn ground floor, maybe the second floor. And it, I know, and, I, and it was, you know, at the time you don't even realize how awesome that was. And then hung with it through the end of the shuttle program, which is, you know, 2011. So that was 30 years later. Yeah. And, uh, and who thought you could be able to hang on a program that long and do what you want to do, but it. It, it, it was, it was a great ride. I, I, and I, I talked to people about what I used to do and they're going, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's incredibly fascinating. And like I said, we've had a couple of phone conversations. I think the first one I was just like, Hey, just do a 10 minute little, would you like to come on the show? We end up 45 minutes later talking. The next time we talked to her about an hour and a half, our, uh, your, I think your phone died and then you called me back on your, yeah. on your wife's phone and we continued the conversation. So this is awesome. I've been wanting to get you on for a long time here. I know Patrick drove all the way up from Austin. Uh, here just to speak with you. So uh, we're incredibly interested in what you have to say. So uh, with the shuttle program, the first challenge that you achieved
achieved was the fuel or the asset issue that you guys achieved at the age of 26. I feel that the, the, the listeners and viewers really need to know that. I started at 22. Oh, no big deal. As, no big deal. As it <laughs> My was, bad. It was, str- <laughs> it was straight out of college. But, yeah. uh, That's fascinating. And, then, and yeah, jumped, jumped in early. And uh, as, the, as the shuttle started to develop into a, uh, a business, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of uh, the work that NASA was doing started getting uh, centralized in Houston. Mm. So we, uh, we moved to Houston and they started what they called the shuttle operations program, which was the intent was figure out how to bring in customers, you know, who had uh, a payload of whatever it was and be able to put it into the shuttle, combine it into the shuttle, work it out so that they could meet their objectives on any given mission that we had. So you're fitting payloads into what missions you were flying, what they were doing, what other things were flying. They couldn't interfere with one another. And yeah, because that was the way that they subsidized the cost of the launching was they had private entities that wanted to do space. Uh, they launched satellites up there. The government wanted it because uh, STS stands for what? Space Transportation System. Correct. And so they were just wanting to get payloads up there and people paid them to do it, which subsidized the cost quite a bit. Correct. And you know, a lot of them were satellites. We had Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah. You know, you had... Uh, um, Intel sat, you had the, uh, the, the GPS systems were in there. I mean, it was whatever you want to do. And then many small payloads, you, they would just, uh, we, they had these things that were basically, I think they called them gas cans, but they were basically this canister you'd mount on the inside of the payload bay. And when the payload bay doors opened, they started collecting data, whatever they wanted to do. Wow. And, you know, a lot of times they'd expose themselves to, to vacuum. And that's what they wanted was the vacuum of space and do whatever their experiment was. And, and you, what you're trying to do is maximize, minimize their cost right. to make this happen to get whatever they want to do. So it was, I mean, there was lots of things. And it turns out lots of experiments that we did on the space shuttle were intended to test out capabilities for space station for the next step right because you helped Aiden design that well and you want to with any program you want to learn from your past whatever and I jumped in on the ground floor space station uh, early early 90s late 80s and uh, you always wanted to test out everything you could with the shuttle when it's there yeah you know if if you've got something on orbit and you have a primary payload that's, you know, let's just say launching a satellite or doing whatever. There's still a bunch of room left in the payload bay. And you put up an experiment up there that tests out some small piece of what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, the biggest, the, the hardest things with space is it's, you got to work between, if you're on orbit on space station, as an example. I mean, you're working in environments that are minus 200 degrees F up to plus 250 degrees F. Yeah. So f- and sunlight and shadow type thing. Right. When you, yeah. get, when you get on the dark side of, of, of the Earth, everything gets really cold. When you get onto the sun side of an orbit, everything gets hot. Yeah. And everything's mechanical. I mean, everything mm-hmm. we do is mechanical. And mechanisms don't work good in that environment. Yeah. You it's know, hard they, to simulate that on Earth as well because there's extreme conditions and especially incorporating a vacuum. It's not hard to do mm. but i mean it, it you can usually only do it in you know small environments right right it's not like you can we there's nasa has some facilities that are rather large and we have some facilities you can actually put an astronaut in a spacesuit into a chamber and that chamber can go through those temperature swings wow and we we did that kind of testing as well where you put your mechanism into that environment and then you put the man in the loop and if he's supposed to do something to actuate it, deploy it, assemble it, whatever you need to do. He would try and actually do that in that cold and hot environment. And it, you know, they use that for certification of hardware. Yeah. Just making sure that your mechanisms are designed. And the funny part is that you get down to problems that are created when your dimensions are off by a thousandth of an inch. Right. You know, it's, uh, it's like anything, you get moving mechanisms and even even metals shrink and grow mm-hmm. at extreme temperatures. Yeah. So if you have a, a you know a, a telescoping system, if those uh, features aren't designed and 
controlled to very tight tolerances, they'll freeze up in cold temperatures or they'll get too loose in hot temperatures. And, or you just have to, if your mechanism doesn't work at extreme colds, you wait 30 minutes until mm. the sun hits it, then it warms up and then it starts working again. See, there was a movie that I saw. I can't remember the damn movie, but they were, act, they were putting something on the shuttle, I believe. And that was, that was one of the issues they were having. And this, you know, Hollywood film or whatever, but um, there was a bolt that wouldn't fit. And he goes, oh, just wait. And when they came around to the sunset, it heated it up enough and then they were, they were able to implement it. So that's a factual thing. That happens all the time. That's fascinating. Yeah, so and, there is a term, a, a time in the orbit process to where you're just like, oh, just wait a little bit and then we'll reach around the other side and it'll work. Yeah. Space station orbits the Earth every 90 minutes. Wow. And in that 90 minutes, about 30 of it or 35 minutes usually is in darkness mm-hmm. and cold. And then you come out to a sunrise and you come down to a sunset about an hour later. So you get... You get about an hour of sunlight and about 30 minutes of darkness every orbit. What, that has to, what long-term effects does that have on a craft that's constantly ebbing and flowing? Uh, and that's what you have to protect or you know, design for so that that doesn't affect, so that the vehicle's not affected by that. That's fascinating. And, and that's usually the, whether you're building a big mechanism or a small mechanism, and I hate to use the word, but everything is a mechanism. You mm-hmm. know, even if it's just a, a piece of truss, a piece of steel. Yeah. You know, it, it can twist, it can turn, it can, it'll shrink and grow. And if it's not properly designed, it could create a problem. Yeah. I mean, they put a, they put a basically railroad track on space station that the, uh, the mobile transporter cruises up and down. Oh wow! So it's about two hundred feet long, but it's a train track. So and those tracks constantly shrink and grow. Yeah. So the, the, the wheel bearings that they put on the, you know, basically the train that runs up and down has to be forgiving to that, that shrinking and growing. Just every bit of it's fascinating. Even those, it's, those environmental challenges that you go against, that's, that's incredible. It's uh, uh, late in my career. Um, you know what a ball detent is? No. It's ball some, detent, Patrick? It's, All it's, right. it's just anything that you use on like a, uh, on a cabinet door latch. Oh, okay. It's a small little s- cylinder that has threads on the outside, and there's a ball in it that's spring-loaded. So oh. if you need a little latch, yes. you know, on a door or on anything, it's a very common part for getting a, you know, a soft capture, so to speak. Okay. Very common part. We use them everywhere on Space Station. Fifteen years into the program, we start having problems, and we can't figure out why. So. Uh, these little ball detents, the ones we use in space, they're all stainless steel. They're all relatively highly controlled. And I called the vendor and the vendor was blown away that we used them on space station. <laughs> it's like, no, Can't. man, this goes in your house. <laughs> we, we, never, we never tested those to cold temperatures before. And I'm going, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> but I'm sure somebody <laughs> thought of that before they threw them up on the space station, right? Nobody. 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 That slipped by, huh? Nobody. <laughs> and... and the hard thing is you, you're constantly using existing design. Sure. You use a certified design so that you don't have to go back and start from scratch. Okay. So I don't know how this one actually got in, but they had only tested to like just below, uh, you know, zero. Zero, freezing to zero. That's where they, and you know, they did that for uses in like, fr- you know, freezers and that are, that are on that kind of range, but they never went below to the high negatives or the low negatives. and. When I told them we were operating these things at minus 200, they're going, how are they working? <laughs> I'm going, no, that's why I called you. Because yeah, <laughs> you know? they're not. And but for 15 years, they did okay? Um, we had a couple of problems with some devices. We had one pretty serious one early on that we launched something in between the railroad track that was going to be removed and assembled. Okay. But that was just a convenient spot to mount it. And it turned out on orbit, we couldn't get it off. Oh, no. So it's that ball detent stuck and prevented this thing from being demated, so to speak, or taken apart. And it was stuck there. So, I mean, we went out and hit it with a hammer until we got it out. But it it was... I like that there's still a lot of practical knowledge that goes involved up there. A lot of like, well, it's what we got. uh, Well, and, you know, you try, you let it get to the hot side of the orbit. And if it loosens up and it works, you're good. If that doesn't work, you get out there with a pry bar or a hammer and... 
and make it work. So yeah. one, of, one of, you know, there's that old joke that, um, you know, there's things on the space station and the shuttle are like $10,000 for a hammer and like $40,000 for a toilet seat. What's, what's that all about? <laughs> it's, uh, it's true. Uh-huh. It does cost that much. But typically the cost is associated with kind of what I just mentioned to you. You have to certify it to work in, in any environment. Right. And so typically uh, it, can't, it can't be cast. Okay. Because um, when you use a cast material, it has bubbles or voids in it. Mm-hmm. When you take a void to vacuum, it basically will crack the material. Who found that out first? They're, oh, they're you, trying to... you see that all the time. Okay. I that... mean, any early testing, you know, you just put, if you just put a craftsman wrench in a vacuum, it'll probably break when you go to vacuum and cold. Got you. I mean, and it'll just fracture. Yeah. So, I mean, that material just can't handle that kind of environment. You also don't use anything that's coated. So like chrome plated, mm-hmm. you don't want to do that because that will also have a void underneath it. And when you take that to vacuum, that will just crack your finish yeah and if if you don't crack the material it'll be the finish and that creates a sharp edge that all that's it's bad problematic yeah all that's bad when you're talking about a guy in a spacesuit you know trying to make things work yeah and uh but i mean all that comes with time but back to the ball detent nobody everybody thought it was good mm-hmm. and and i'm sure in the environment that somebody wanted to use it in it was good but it shouldn't have been outside without going through additional testing. And a lot of times you'll use something and you'll test it and you're going, well, you know, I'm really not going to get down to minus 200. Mm. My environment, we're going to put an astronaut in that environment is probably only going to get down to like minus 40 or 50. Right. And it still works at minus 40 or 50. But once you start going beyond, it, it's, it gives you problems. And, uh, and, I, and that was just one of those things that I dug up that was just, I hate to call it funny, but it, it was, it, it's, it's like, how did, how did nice we never know this? Yeah. How did we never know this? And don't get me wrong. We whenever you wanted one of these little ball detents, you only went to this particular vendor. Yeah. The vendor's name is Lear. I don't mind no, using it's good, it. It's, it's a good plug because they can, they probably put this on their website. We're on the and, ISS. <laughs> We're good. We're good. Down yeah. at negative 200. It's and, on their, it's on their bio right and, now. If not, they should be. And I, I. I helped design a, a tool that they used on Space Station that had a couple of ball detents on it. Okay. So we had the full range of information on, on this one particular, you know, they were smaller detents. They come, you know, as big as your thumb and as, you know, as small as a pencil. So, I mean, there are all kinds of different sizes, but this particular one that we tried, we, we tested and it worked fine all the way through hot. But as soon as we got to about minus 40 and beyond, it started freezing up. Damn. And when it frees up, that basically means that little soft capture doesn't want to release. Right. So the ball detent, the spring doesn't work, the thing doesn't work, and it won't come off. And then we got into a lot more detail about how, how they manufactured it and how they, how they made the ball captive. Yeah. And it turns out, you know, they basically just cut a tube, and, and that little crimp created the captive nature of the ball, and that process wasn't really... Um, quality that, control. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, oh yeah, we cut it there and it keeps it captive by this and then we stop there. And it's like, well, how close was it? And how much did you deform the cylinder that you did when you cut? And yeah. oh, we, it was always good enough. You yeah. Because <laughs> it wasn't meant to be used on the space station, man. That's pretty I, cool though. It wasn't meant I, I don't want to say it wasn't meant to be used. It met all the right material requirements. Just not a negative 200. It just, it was that, just a those, temperature issue. At those extremes, yeah. right, it just, it, it froze up at the, at the really cold extremes. But once it warmed back up, it worked fine again. <laughs> just wait a minute. It'll yeah, be fine. I, I, and, and, You're stuck out there for a minute, Glenn. Just give it a minute. We'll be around in 35 and we'll, we'll free you up here. We'll, when you get assigned a project, is this something that, um, so the projects that you worked on included mechanisms like this and tools that you designed for space and then you watch tolerances and materials, lack of coding, things like that. Whenever you got a project, did they come to you with this or was this somebody that, did you figure out anything where you're like, hey, we can do this better? And then you improve on a design that's already there? We do, you do a lot of improving okay. on anything, but most of the projects that we worked on, and one of the very cool things about working on the space shuttle or the space station is it was first of a kind stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, if you build a tool, it's a, it's a special purpose tool. No one's ever done it before. 
you're, you're pretty much starting with a, a blank piece of paper. Yeah, you're not shipping a bunch of those IKEA wrenches up there that'll oh. do everything. And and you're just you're just doing the best you can, right. trying to figure out what the problem is, making a a tool or a solution to fix your problem. Right. And and you get to cradle to grave it, which was the part I always liked. You know, you you start with the problem and you try and fix the problem, and then you get to come up with some concepts of how you want to fix it, and then. You run it by a bunch of people and everybody goes, okay, yeah, we like that one. Yeah. Go forward with that one. And then you get to, you know, we, and I, I don't really design the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm worked more on a conceptual side Then we hire, you know, drafters, technicians, designers to mm-hmm. actually build it Yeah. or, or design it. And then you have somebody manufacture it. And, and then I usually got back into the projects when we had to test them. Right. If it was a astronaut in the loop. Uh, my job was to get that astronaut to understand how the tool worked, make sure that the tool worked with his suit right, and that he could understand how to do it and he didn't run into problems with it and could install it, assemble it, do whatever he needed to do with it. Yeah. So there was always that hands-on purpose. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd say that was pretty much my niche in life was, you know, building simulators of the actual flight configurations and then putting it in front of astronauts to, first of all, agree that it worked and agree they could do it, and then being able to certify it that it would work in the extreme environments, and then putting those two together to have the astronaut in the extreme environment actually work in the, work in the tools or work in the mechanisms. And it was, I mean, I, it's really enjoyable. And, and I did this with the space station as a big project, but the small goals in life is, you know, that's the little things that keep you going. Yeah. The absolutely. little projects and you're like, oh yeah, you know, and you were able to start from a blank piece of paper, get it agreed to, get it designed, then we test it, you know, then, uh, you know, the manufacturer will start building a bunch of them and you got to test each one as it comes through the pike to make wow. sure that no imperfections he's got, he's got quality control that won't hurt anything. Yeah. The consistency across the process. Yeah. What was your favorite project that you worked on? In your 40 favorite, years. Favorite project. Um, after the Columbia accident, uh, I, the Columbia accident is where they had a, a breach of the heat shield protection system mm-hmm. during entry, and that caused the destruction of the vehicle. Right. And um, the heat shields on the shuttle are made of what's called a silica tile. It's basically a porcelain kind of tile, a very lightweight you know, ceramic kind of a tile. Right. And uh, uh, the material, the silica material is, if you, you know, if you hit some of these tiles, it would basically fracture like, um, like, like a tile that's yeah. on your floor. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, one of the natures of this material is nothing sticks to it. Oh, okay. So um, the, the challenge we had was to fix a damaged tile. Mm. So if something hit the tile during ascent and it was damaged for the whole flight and you didn't know it, but you saw it, somehow you I- identified the problem on orbit mm-hmm. and they said, oh, well, we got to do something like that in order to get home. So we uh, were part of developing systems associated with how can we get an astronaut out there? What kind of material can you create that actually sticks to silica tile? Yeah. And on the ground, that kind of stuff's easy. You know, you go out and get a caulk tube and you, yeah, squirt, glue you s- or something, yeah. squirt something in there and it dries and we're good. Yeah. Well, it doesn't work that way in cold and hot temperatures. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't work that way in a vacuum, you know, so you had to figure out chemicals that will give you a chemical reaction that will actually cure and harden. And then you got to figure out some way to get it to actually stick to this tile that doesn't want it to stick to anything. Right. And after the Columbia accident, we got involved in a number of very interesting small projects to, uh, to enable a crew member to go fix the damage to the bottom of the shuttle. Right. And that was the second major disaster that happened. I mean, it's 133 successful missions in 30 years with the shuttle program. And the accidents you had were the Challenger in 86 and then the Columbia in 2003, which is what you're talking about there. And that specific instance is when, I guess it was a piece of foam or debris on launch that happened and it hit the underside of the left wing, which was, that's what made it fail on re-entry was it just 
it couldn't structural integrity it couldn't work well and nobody knew it was there i mean they flew that whole mission and no one realized that that launch environment created the problem oh okay so yeah. the guys on orbit didn't even know what happened so that was post where they were looking at grainy footage to figure out what hit and why because they did and, definitely see temperature spike on the left side on re-entry and, and i think the captain even said we have three failing electronic sensors uh temperature sensors on the left side and, and that's kind of how they figured it out and you know coming in through re-entry it's basically a blowtorch yeah you lost your thermal protection of these silica tiles yep they're about three inches thick in most places and that you know, then behind that is just sheet aluminum. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and at those temperatures, aluminum's just going to melt. Yeah, because so the, the same thing basically happened basically what happened is you're going to get burn throughs. Right, and then it compromises everything. And you can't, one little chink in the armor. And it, well, and it just propagates. Yeah. You know, so the problem just gets worse and worse and worse. Because the same thing I want to say was STS-71, uh, where they did have a, the, a similar and actually a worse debris impact, but it was on the right side and it was not in the danger zone. It wasn't in a part that impacted that heavily on reentry. Right. And so it wasn't a big deal. So it's all about placement and... It's, it's, it's... There's so many variables in yeah. there, but I mean, and, and again, if, if you're in a point on the vehicle where there's something behind that structural sheet of aluminum, yeah, then it's a problem. If there's nothing behind it, then hopefully it's not a very long period of time. You can just fly through it. And it'll dissipate. And, or, or it won't create worse problems. Right. And I, you know, if, if it gets bad enough, it just yeah. burns through and, and just makes everything worse. But as a after that accident i mean uh the several challenges we had to work through one was you know the actual putting the goo putting you know and it, it turned out to be uh if you work on cars it's uh it's there's a a, a gasket goo that you make for gaskets that oh. see the high temperature of, yeah. of an engine yeah when you want to make your own gasket or you want to use a goo to put around a gasket it's it's designed for hot temperatures we used a compound very similar to that okay added some more fillers to it so that it could handle high heat and then cr created a catalyst that would allow it to harden mm -hmm. without oxygen damn so it was like it was like a two-part epoxy yeah. that you put together and they created fancy you know compression guns that you could you know, have this tank on your back and you pull out your little hose and, you know, it feeds these two chemicals to a nozzle that spirals it and mixes it as it goes through the nozzle. And then you fill and you're done. Damn. And that, that particular system just got to be too complicated for an emergency repair. Okay. So you get all the way through it and we ended up using a, a standard off-the-shelf cock gun <laughs> that just so happened to be made out of stainless steel. And the little cartridge tubes were made out of polyethylene both materials which work in hot and cold environments yeah just coincidentally so all they did is they created this two-part mix in these off-the-shelf uh polyethylene tubes yeah and you put a specific nozzle on the end of it that mixes the two chemicals together as it's coming out it's just a little spiral in the nozzle and you've created your system so so you ended up just going down to ace hardware and picking one up and charging the taxpayers about twenty thousand dollars for that thing but we had to prove it worked. Well, right. No, no, no. I know. That's, that's the, the point the I was cost, trying to make. The, the hard point of the cost <laughs> is you have to go through all the requirements to make sure, you know, it's not too much force for the astronaut's hand. Right. There's no sharp edges on anything. When that stainless steel cock gun is exposed to sunlight, that thing will heat up to 250 degrees in about 10 minutes. Yeah. So you got to make sure that it's not too hot for the crew member to grab in his in his gloved hand and you got to put the whole off the shelf tool through all the testing yes yes and then it's never off the shelf they always modify oh it. you have to you know yeah i need i need a, a, a an on off nozzle mm -hmm. that on the ground is this you know this tiny little thing you just flip with your thumb but on orbit this guy's wearing uh, a spacesuit and is it's like wearing three pairs of garden gloves and you got no feeling right and they make a, a knob that's as big as a quarter for him to actually turn and actuate as opposed to this little thumb switch of what it was originally yeah, designed easily as. Easily articulated with our fingers, but in a space it's much, much, much different. So you've got to, you always modify. Yeah. And then every time you modify, you got to prove that your modification 
didn't create a problem at right. hot and cold extreme. So it's just, it's just a menagerie of, you know, trying to do the best you can to pull it off the shelf, modifying it as needed, but not too much so that you don't take, you don't create new problems. Sure. And then, and then keep going. So that particular cock gun with that particular can, I mean, I bought online and you can get it off the shelf for about a hundred bucks. Yeah. But now to put it through all the testing and all the certification and all, and all the quantities I have to burn to put it through the yes, testing. Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah. So you, there you go, people. It's settled. He's told yeah. you here. This is why those things cost so much. Quit hyper-focusing on it. It's not an off-the-shelf cost. It is a R&D type of investment in and, our astronauts. And, and the hard part is always the certification. You know, my job in, in designing and developing any kind of tools, you have this long laundry list of requirements and you have to meet them all. Sure. And then after you meet them all, you got to go back and prove to people that you met them all. So all that has a series of testing or paperwork behind it that says, here's how I met that requirement. Here's yeah. how I met that requirement. Here's how I met that requirement. And you got to go through, I, you know, we always went through a preliminary design review, a critical design review, and then we go through a design effort, and then you go through drawing reviews, and, you know, NASA follows along at every step. Right. And in between all those steps, I get all the, you know, in this case, Boeing engineers doing all the work to make sure they met all those requirements. Yeah. And then at the very end, you dump them a, you know, a stack of paper that's a thousand pages long that proved that you met every point. And, I, and that's what costs the money is, you know, all the people, the time, the effort, the, the proof of the certification. Yeah. And it's understandable. It's just one of those fun facts that everybody points to that, oh, NASA $10,000 hammer, you know? Well, of course it's going to be 10 grand, man. You got to figure this shit out. There's, there's a, a set of uh, tools that the astronauts use on orbit. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. And they're primarily snap-on tools. Oh, wow. And the, re- the reason everybody loved them is because they can make them out of stainless. Yeah, yeah. And, and not coat them and not, meet the requirements. Know, that's it. And so was there somebody this. at Snap-on basically just going, yeah, we'll modify that for you? Or did you guys get a tool, modify and manufacture it yourself? You guys outsourced a lot of that T- stuff, right? Typically, you buy it off the shelf. And Interesting. Lots of tools. And uh, we love the medical industry because all the medical tools are um, stainless. Yeah. You know, because they're associated with, with operations, right? And the scissors that the astronauts use that actually always carry a pair of scissors in their spacesuit mm-hmm. in case they get tangled or need to cut themselves out. They're an off-the-shelf pair of surgical scissors, it's you know. And dangerous yet useful, you know. Well, necessary. Like you want it, you just don't want to put it back wrong. Right, you know? it's necessary. Yeah. And, and they have a specific pouch on their leg that's yeah. for that, and it's lanyarded to that pouch, but they can pull it out do what they need to do and then put it back in that pouch and it's safe if you grab it correctly. You right. obviously don't cut your yeah. finger out, you know, <laughs> you don't like wanna... anything. It's a sharp knife. Don't do that. Yeah. But, yeah. uh, I mean, you have to have it. Right. So, I mean, but we re- leaned on the surgical industry to actually, um, you know, adopt that tool. They modified the handle sure, a little bit so that you could fit with a big glove. Yeah. But the actual scissor itself was a standard, you know, uh, medical, medical scissors. Wow. So, I mean, you always try and rely on anything that's already been designed so that you don't have to. And lots of things are made out of stainless steel Mm -hmm. or other pure materials. You know, anything that's a machined aluminum or, you know, as long as the the pedigree of the material is one material. Mm. And again, as long as cast things in general don't work very well. So Mm. they like them to be machined instead of cast. Because cast introduce voids. Got you. But so was working with the, uh, the astronauts on their EVAs or the extravehicular activities. That was that's fascinating. So what was your favorite part about doing that? And uh, just uh, I would say the best part was the people. Yeah, working I mean, with the guys and, and girls. I, uh, yes, and okay. it, it's always fun to you know. There's there's all kinds of different astronauts, but usually the ones that are spacewalkers. Most of them are, are military background. Mm. Most of them are very hands on. Um, some are PhD doctors and a lot of the work that goes on with astronauts on space station is with doctors. So doctors that turned into astronauts and then they do, uh, uh, physiological, um, you know, how the human body works in space. Mm-hmm. So while you're inside, you're doing a lot of testing, but with any astronaut, they've got a thousand jobs and, you know, from, you know, cleaning the bathrooms to, you know, to 
walking through procedures and understanding the medical end of of things that they're doing i mean yeah you gotta have a lot of tools in that chest no matter what your specialty correct because that and, was the, the thing that the space program or the shuttle program specifically did bring was a diversity in the space crews because before then it was white males of mil- military backgrounds and that was the Dunai and apollo missions and the shuttle program is what allowed them to incorporate not only females but minorities as well and, and, and that's and, when it started diversifying it's, that's why you didn't have to have so many military and specific you could bring in doctors and engineers and phds you had to do a, a wide range of of people to do the job yeah and in a lot of cases i, I would get a medical doctor that we're going to ask to turn wrenches mm. So you have to teach that guy yeah. how to turn wrenches. <laughs> practical knowledge. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and, uh, uh, you know, a military test pilot, he probably has his own sports car and works on it. Right. So you don't have to teach him how to turn wrenches. Interesting. But uh, a doctor, and I, you'd always find a diverse person. There's lots of people that I'm the kind of person I'm more hands-on. Mm-hmm. Right. I, you, you, you buy something, you get this installation instructions, you don't even read them and mm-hmm. you put it together. Mm-hmm. Right. And. There are people who are complete opposite of that. They want the procedures. They want to read it thoroughly and read every page and and understand the procedures and all the you know the troubleshooting aspects of it and the you know the gotchas as you're going yeah, through it. If, and yeah. and there's people who like to read it first and then go and try it. Mm. And there's other people who just like to try it and figure it out. Yeah. And it's just a different mindset. And you'll find that most doctors are the kind that actually go through the procedure step by step before they ever do anything. Makes sense. Because so there's they, dire consequences in their professions anyway, and they're used to being they're, very methodical correct, about the procedure. And, and understanding everything thoroughly before you get into it. Sure. And like when you're working on a car, too often you'll just start taking things apart yeah. and putting them back together and, you know, figuring out. What are these out, extra bolts for? Oh, yeah. did that did that work or <laughs> right. not, you know? And But, I mean, it's, it's just a mindset. Yeah. So you have to work, and I, I worked with, all kinds of people like that. I mean, all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of, <coughs> excuse me, um, okay. different degrees. Yeah, and that's what's interesting too, is you really had to tailor your teaching style. So you really had to kind of say, okay, with this particular person, I know I can give them this task and then turn them loose. I may need a little bit of tweaking here, but then with this person, I've got to be a little bit more extra attention just for the practical knowledge side of things. So and you really had to tailor the situation you, to whoever you were talking to. You tailor the way you train it to how the person learns. Just sounds like such a cool job, man. And it and God, just it, the it whole was, damn thing. Let's be honest. This it is was just cool. it was it was a great career. <clears throat> it's a, I mean it was, and and again because it was, you know, one of a kind. It's mm. not something that a guy would normally do. Mm. You, you you teach them, and invite working in an environment, doing this thing, working a mechanism. Yeah, and it's you know typically it's this wholly overdesigned mechanism, and you try and simplify it enough. Really, what we're asking you to do is take that wrench and put it on bolt A, B, and C, and turn it this many times until it's tight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, can we can we reduce the whole mechanism and don't worry about what it does or how right. it works and all that? All we want you to do is put part A to part B and bolt them together. Yeah, and, we figured out the rest for you. Well, and, and but that's <clears> what <throat> we're asking you to do. Don't yeah. worry so much about how this thing is going to perform and work in the future. Just focus on the task at hand and yeah. not so much, you know, that the, that the, uh, need that, the a, that the antenna is going to work. Right. That that the, just the, elect- the electrons are going to throw through that connector you just made. You yeah. Know? Don't worry about all that. What I'm asking you is, you know, take part A and attach it to part B. Yeah. Let's say and, task oriented here. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and again, but, uh, <clears throat> nobody approaches it that way. If you're putting together a carburetor on a car, you want to understand how the carburetor works. And what's important on, you know, the steps you're doing to make sure that what you did is going to make that thing work. Because what you hate doing is, uh, I'm one of those guys, I hate doing things twice. Yes. Yeah, let's I, just do it I, once, I, especially I, up there. Well, and, and it took this. me a minute to get this suit on, I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, it took you a half a day to get this yeah, suit on and I, get ready I to I go do, do the talk job. I about this, but <laughs> yeah. Did you have any input into the glove design or any of the suit design as a tool engineer? I, I, uh, I have never had... Uh, a, a completely different organization is responsible for the spacesuit itself. Yeah, you just had to make it fit into the glove. <coughs> it, it, the suit comes along with a set of requirements if you want to work with it. Gotcha. So you have to meet that set of requirements in order for an astronaut to do it. And, and I mean, you got to have room for the glove. You know, uh, forces associated with 
you know, if you're moving a thumb nod, how much force that thumb nod can actually, at, you know, make it workable by the astronaut in a suit. But there was a complete, uh, the space suit is honestly a spacecraft. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is a, the, one of the great accomplishments in space is having that spacesuit because, you know, you build a vehicle and you have, you know, fuel and oxygen and cooling and heating and, and all of that. And they did all this in a very, very small suit that goes around a person. That's so cool. And that suit has all its own onboard sensors, adjustments, um, so that the astronaut can do it himself. Mm -hmm. If somehow he got cut off, it also has communications. Mm. Yeah. All that has to work in order for that suit to work. And that suit that we've got on space station has, is a very similar to what we used on the moon. So, I mean, it's been around for, you know, 60 years, just like NASA now. And <coughs> we haven't got a lot of, there has not been a lot of changes. The mm. next generation suits, there's a lot of work going in next generation suits, but in my world, the spacesuit was basically a constraint. Yeah. You know, they're going to have to use it. This is what they're using. So you got to work with it. Yeah. And, uh, but it, it is, it, it's a marvel that they can actually send guys out in space and they, they have their own vehicle to get around and do whatever they need. So and cool. that, that part was, uh, it's a very complicated part of, of the industry, but there are some companies that, uh, specialize in that and, uh, they've all, I mean, we, we've worked with them whenever you run into problems, but we, we skipped over in a conversation about when, uh, you know, the things I enjoyed the most, Yeah, we were talking about uh, the accident, the Columbia accident, but that spawned a huge amount of work mm -hmm. to try and figure out how to fix the tile on the shuttle. Yeah. And there were several aspects of it that we focused on. When one, one of the first problems was how do you get an astronaut underneath the belly of the shuttle? Right. There's nothing to hang on to. There's, there's nothing, nothing to hang to on to. And, on to. and there's no way he can get there and he can't just climb across it because it'll create more damage kicking it yep. than he would to get him there. So um, we spent a very large design and development after the Columbia accident to create a, uh, a boom. So the shuttle has a 50-foot robotic arm on it. Right. And it has an elbow in the middle. So what we were trying to do is figure out how to utilize that arm but that's not long enough to reach to the underbelly of the shuttle. Yeah, because it was only 50 feet, right? The payload bay is 15 by 60. Right. And so then the, the arm is only 50. It was only meant to operate and, and it, contract into the payload bay. It was basically the crane yeah. for, for the payload bay. Yeah. But in order to get around the whole side of the vehicle and all the way to the underside, they needed more. Yeah. So we all, uh, we all, they had several contractors trying to figure out a way to do that. Uh, the final solution was... The arm is made by the Canadian Space Agency. So Canada made a 50-foot boom. So the arm flew on one side of the shuttle payload bay and the boom fit on the other one. Mm. So when they needed it, they could put the two booms together. Now I had a 100-foot long boom. Oh, cool. With a joint at about 25 foot up. So that was enough to reach around to the bottom of the shuttle. And then you had this 75-foot windshield wiper. Wow. That could... Pan. And sweep the whole bottom out in any, any place that you needed it to go underneath. And, and again, this, it's just a stick. Mm -hmm. right? So now we had to put an astronaut on the end of that boom <laughs> and make him do the work. Yeah. So that was the final solution. One of the things that uh, Boeing stuck its hat in the, in the ring was to create a, uh, again, this was only supposed to be used in the event you knew you had a problem. Right. This is how you fix it. So it was, it was not gonna be an every time thing. It was like, if I need to go out and do a one-time repair, how do I get there? Damn. So we developed a design that was an inflatable boom. Oh, Because okay. they, didn't, they didn't want to dedicate all this- Cargo space, weight. Weight, and, yeah, volume, absolutely. all this. You didn't want to fly this thousand pound stick every, every time, time that you weren't ever gonna use. Yeah. and. So we said, well, let's come up with an inflatable really idea. It's really smart, though. Yeah. It was, and it rolled up. It was relatively, you know, it, it fit into basically a, about the size of a 55-gallon drum. Okay. Right? And then it would deploy out, and we worked out, uh, there's, a, there's a big industry out there for deployable. 
I'm like uh, military tents. Oh, okay, yeah. I like the rafts on airplanes or something like that. Or little, that, yeah. that same same kind of thing. Uh, you know, space has gone into some of the inflatable Hab- vehicles, tabs and things, tabs and things that you yeah. could do. So, I mean, there were, the technology was out there. Uh-huh. We went to a company and they 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 made tents. They made uh, like mash units for the military, and they you know basically roll this thing out, pressurize it. You got a building. Damn, that's cool. You go inside, you shore it up where you need to shore it up, and now I got a building. Perfect. And it's water resistant. I mean, it's, it's all those things, right? It's so, everything. I mean, and and they're, they, you know, it was just a balloon, so they were uh, available to change the materials. Mm-hmm. They worked with some Kevlar protection for micrometeoroid. Micrometeor, sure. You get uh, thermal protections. You got layers and layers of this, but you had to still make it inflatable and small enough. Yeah. And we came up with this boom that was inflatable. It was about you know, uh, 18 inches, two foot in diameter. I don't remember. And we put this, uh, stainless steel cuff around it that you could basically squeeze on the inflatable to give you a rigidized work spot. Mm. And you could slide that cuff anywhere up and down this 60 foot boom, wherever your problem was. Damn, that's cool. (laughs) was, Was that ever deployed? Uh, not in space. Okay. Right. But we actually, but you could have, if you needed to, it was tested and ready. It was, it was tested for everything except actual flight. Oh, okay. So we we tested the the fixture in its fully deployed configuration okay. to get through, you know, thermal and and uh, mechanical and this any problems we had with this cuff that was going along because it had to be you know sliding along a smooth surface. And yeah. Does it hold? How does it hold? Uh, we actually took this this boom and we actually took it underwater. Another. Interesting. Neutral buoyancy lab. We're going to talk about it in the next episode, that, not this one. I'm uh, going to have you okay. back for a but, part two. But we were, we, I mean, we took this, you know, it's a, it's, it's a balloon mm-hmm. and, you, and we're going, okay, no, how do we test this underwater? Yeah, because it's going to float. <laughs> and so uh, one of my, uh, the guy who designed it basically said, oh, no, that's simple. I said, and he says, well, just fill it up with water. And I'm going, well, that's Son cool. Son of a bitch. Yeah. Well, yeah that's, <laughs> that's why we keep you around, that's Larry. That's a great nice idea. job. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I, I just laugh because he used, you know, I don't think it was even an inch. It might've been two inches of PVC. Yeah. Brought that PVC up out of the water about uh, 20, 25 feet, something like that. And they just filled that tube and that creates enough pressure to pressurize all the water inside that, that, that volume. Damn. So it's just water pressure, which is, uh, I mean, but. It's brilliant fig- though. Figuring out how to get the right pressure on that to simulate uh, um, you know, an air volume, yeah, right, and simulate the air pressure, but do it with water underwater. So you get the the water in the pool that's pushing you from the outside, and you get the water from the inside through this water pressure system that just gives you the right differential so that it worked perfectly. Damn, and little, <laughs> like I said, little problems like that, right? But, but little opportunities in disguise. But how cool is it to be solving challenges like that? And like that you, you show up every day, you're just like either continuing on a project that's awesome or you're starting a new project that's awesome. Right. And so that was a very cool project to work on. Didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And it turned out, you know, like I said, Canada got the, the bid to put in a second boom and they flew that second boom uh, on all the missions after Columbia. Yeah. And then at the end of life, we actually put that boom on space station. What, did it ever need to be deployed to repair anything? It, uh, well, we tested it once to repair something. Okay. And we actually used it once to, to go after something. So they didn't really perform a repair, but they did go and look at a spot and actually, uh, in between all these little square tiles on the bottom of the shell, they usually use a, a spacer. Mm-hmm. And some of these spacers came out. So doing a camera inspection, they do a camera inspection with that boom. Okay, that makes so sense. So you do, you do a camera inspection first. They spotted something that they thought was a serious problem. They went out there and looked at it, and they pulled out the spacer and brought it home with them, but it really wasn't a problem. Yeah, it was, and, and that's something they do on the ISS. Is, well, they used to before the shuttle program retired was they would flip it over, and so the ISS could get a look at the underbelly. Right. Yeah. And then also they had that issue of, I want to say it was Columbia, whenever it came back in, they knew something was wrong. I want to say they knew something was wrong early on, or they figured it out mid-flight while they were up there. So they pointed satellites at it and tried to get photos, but they were not able to determine anything based on that. Right. But having that Canada arm go out and do a sweep before the ISS was up there that could do that. Right. That's pretty interesting. And that, and they did that after all the missions after uh, the Columbia accident. Yeah. They would actually perform a, an inspection as part of ascent. 
mm. uh, before you got to work. You wanted to make sure there was no problems with the heat shields for return. How long was it between when Columbia happened and the Canada Arm deployed? Because it was two years before you returned to flight. Um, not Columbia, uh, Challenger, it was two years before you returned to flight. But because of the Columbia incident, how long before they were able to do that? No, when they, did that go into implementation? They, we didn't. We didn't fly again until we had that arm, that okay. booming place. That's interesting. And uh, to Canada's, you know, great support and effort to the program. That that boom was very made of very similar components as the shuttle arm. Yeah. So and they were already designing a space station arm mm. at the time. So they had all the right technology to just. And again, it was a very simple boom. Yeah. Right. One piece. You know, same fittings as the the shuttle robotic arm for launching and, and releasing and deploying. So, I mean, all the, they had all the right, the right groundwork in place. So again, they, they, they leveraged off of the sh shuttle arm design right. and created a new boom M was the minimal cost. But again, the bad thing that the program didn't like is they had to suck up that overhead, right? The, the cost that, to modify the other side of all the shuttles, right? To put in all these features, to have these booms, yep. that fly these booms every time. The excess um, in weight, then you have to take off something else. It's, um, it's, and it had to fit. Yeah, you know, and, and with not, whatever other cargo you want to take And not interfere with everything Damn. that was already designed to work. And, all of it for a safety protocol. Correct. And uh, but that was that was one project. The boom was one project. So another aspect that we did is we put a crew member on the end of this boom mm -hmm. to actually do the work on the bottom of the shuttle. Yeah. Now, how do you know that you're not going to hurt the shuttle robotic arm by doing that? Because you just added a 50 foot moment arm right. to the end of this arm. You don't want to back drive joints and start tearing up gears or mechanisms. Snap off and bad, yeah. all bad. bad right? All bad. Yeah. Not <laughs> ideal. No, I mean, lots of bad things could happen. So yeah. we had to prove that that wasn't a problem. Again, a small project I got onto was uh, crew members work out of what's known as a foot restraint. Mm -hmm. So they, they click their heels into a, a, a plate um, that's like uh, ski boots, mm -hmm. right? Then you just kind of click your heels in and then you've, you've solidified your feet. Mm -hmm. So you've got a work platform. Um, and it's a standard piece. It's a standard tool for space station and space shuttle. So all, they've always had these things. So when you're working outside, you've got a way to secure yourself to structure and then be able to freely work so you're not always floating around. Yeah. Well, they, they put one of these foot restraints on the end of this 100-foot boom so that you could, you know, cherry pick an astronaut wherever you need to put him on the bottom of the, uh, bottom of the shuttle. Right. Well, they, didn't, they wanted to make sure that whatever we had that astronaut do wouldn't backdrive the shuttle arm or break the shuttle arm or create more harm than you're solving. Yeah. So they asked us to build a, uh, a foot restraint that actually had a, uh, a load cell in it. Oh, so you can measure the load. So that you can, whatever that crew member's doing with his hands. Yeah. You know, if it's a push off, whatever it is. That's a great idea. You could measure what it's doing to the tip of the boom. And then the, the, the robotic joints on the shuttle arm all had sensors on them. So they knew the feedback to them. Right. But what we didn't want to do was overload the shuttle arm. Right. By performing something and, and you know, it's, it's simple physics. Yep. If I increase the moment arm, I'm, I'm multiplying that force by, by the moment arm. Yep. And it's, you know, if it's a pound out there, when I add 50 foot to it, it's 50 pounds. Yep. And it's like, we got to make sure that we don't snap something when we're doing this. And uh, so, uh, but again, my small piece of this was to create the load cell. That's so cool. And put the load cell in space and let it collect the data. Yeah. So if I'm collecting data, I gotta have a I gotta have a power source. So we're using batteries. And what, during that project was the first time I learned about batteries in space. Uh-huh. They they're really not compatible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and uh, lithium ion are batteries of the batteries of choice these days. Mm-hmm. And uh, you when you go and buy lithium ion batteries, you know, double A batteries at, at the store. Yeah. Those are basically the batteries that we use on space station. Really? We certified a double A battery and then that's what you use. If you need more voltage, you just put a bunch of them in series. Huh. But they all use the same cell. Damn. Because they took that cell and, and, and it's not exactly the same as what you buy right. off the shelf. It's but I mean, you, they designed a cell, a small voltage cell. Yeah. 
And if you needed more amperage, more voltage, you just multiplied the number of batteries you needed until you got what you wanted. But if you use that cell, which was an off-the-shelf cell, yeah. you didn't have to go recertify the battery. Damn. Which is like, please give me that knowledge. Yeah. And, you know, I'll go wrap six of them together to, mm-hmm. to last for what we need to do, collect the data we need to do, you know, run some small card, circuit board card that would collect the data. Yeah. Right. And then when we get back to the ground, we just take the card and, and, and it collected the data and we're done. Damn. And, but I mean, the actually working with the battery, I mean, cause lots of bad things. You don't want any leakage, you, yeah. don't, you know, and when they're coded for a reason too, but you guys couldn't have them coded. You get, you, you have to there, you know, again, they got to a design right. that they approved. Okay. So there was this double A cell. Mm-hmm. That was approved for use, all the right materials, all the right, you know, past the the high heat and the low temperature testing and it never exploded, it never leaked, it never had a problem. And and we would buy this cell by the lot, <laughs> right, buy a thousand of them and just use them and keep using them until- What's NASA doing? Little bunnies or copper tops? What are we talking about? <laughs> it's it's a completely separate okay, name. Okay, I mean, it's- Radio Shack, yeah. It's not, it's not something you truly buy off the shelf, but they, they customized the design and then when everybody wanted a battery, they bought those. Damn. And you could buy them a thousand at a time. Yeah. And if you only needed six, it didn't matter. You needed a hundred to get through the testing. Right. Right. So, I mean, it was much cheaper to just buy this, this lot of these cells and use them until you were done with the project. Damn. And again, I'd leave, you know, 500 on the shelf in, in bonded storage Mm -hmm. when we were done with the program, but we're going, well, there's, there's a bunch of free ones for you now, or (laughs) you already paid for those. So here, if you need them in the future, use them. Yeah. Um, but that and that was a great project. I mean, the load cell was a great project, and and you did some work on the ISS batteries as well, right? Uh, ISS. The, well, my when I started working the the space station program, um, my company was responsible for the electric power system. Right. Okay. So, I mean, and, and you make that sound simple, but it's an uh, no, external. Simple. It's an external <laughs> system. Yeah. Solar cells and batteries. Yeah. And then you know charge discharge units and 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 power distribution units right. and um all that had to be assembled by astronauts right as as and when it flew what however it flew it had to be assembled by astronauts and then it also had to be designed to be maintenance uh maintained by astronauts yeah so everything had to be compatible with the astronaut compatible with the suit compatible with the tools right um basically simply uh you know remove and replace type items sure and uh, and I say simple, you know, we push the envelope for simple because one single battery on space station, and there's uh, I should know this. There's 48 on space station, but one single battery is about uh, 18 inches tall, roughly three foot by three foot. Okay. So it's the size of a of like a small chest refrigerator. Yeah. Right? And we attach those to space station with two bolts. Holy shit! And and so when a crew member has to replace me, he just has to undo two bolts. He now has a refrigerator in his hands. Yeah. And he hands that off to somebody because that's the dead one. Now give me a new one. And he puts that back in and he drives two bolts. Damn. But to get to that design end. Yeah. Required an enormous amount of, of mechanical work to make it happen. That so, we are going to pick up on our next episode. That's, that's fair. But that okay. was... Because I've got a, a bunch more questions, but we're just out of time. But the, that's okay. The electrical part of the job was, you know, to design that system uh-huh. and, and included in that was the solar cells. Damn. So, see, and solar cells we're going to pick up on the next episode. Okay. Did you have any additional questions for him on this one? I do, but it's just a joke question. Okay. Did you include like a smoke detector sound when the batteries went <laughs> out so they had to go and find which which one it was on the ISS? Uh, I hate to say it, for, for, for the new design, we actually did have to design in a, uh, a port that would uh, allow gas to escape the, the container it was in. <clears throat> and that port, because it was lithium ion and because they could flash, uh, if you know anything about lithium ion batteries, their failure mode is they burn up. Yeah, a little bit. Um, <laughs> so we did create a port and the indication that that battery had failed would be scorching at that port. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, you'd so know, of, you'd know, it, you'd know it from the inside that it failed, that right. it wasn't working, but you had to go out there and you had, they actually had a, a vent port that 
they would ask you to see if they're scorching next to it. Oh, wow. Wow. But that would be a cool thing to do to haze the rookie, you know, uh, have a beep go off and they're like, all right, guy, get out there. There's 48 of them. Go test them all. Go see which one's beeping like your smoke detector in your house. That's hilarious, Patrick. Thank you. That's hilarious. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us, man. Do you mind uh, doing another episode with us here in the near near future? Are you telling me that we're already through an hour? Yes. All right. Yes. It's uh, it goes and it flies. And I have way more questions for you. We just are out of time for this one. So all right. We will definitely be doing this on the next one. Uh, Kirk Carlton, thank you so much. Patrick, thank you so much for that banger there at the end. Good call, dude. Thank you. We'll be back. We will be back. Uh, And you guys can find us at Expanding Reality um, Podcast, I think. Yeah, on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, Then you can go to the YouTube and see this uh, video there. Uh, Thanks again to Kurt and Patrick for hanging out with me. I really appreciate it. And we will see you all next time. You guys be good to each other. Get out of the left lane. Be nice to everybody. All right.